All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, so today I'm using a handheld. The, the, the other mics were kind of acting up, but the first service went pretty good, so I'm trying to figure out if this is a new thing, so we'll see how it goes. Anyways, for those of you who are uh, new here, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church, and before we get started this morning, I want to say a quick hello to all of you who are here in the room. I also want to say hello to our online viewers, and I want to send a warm welcome to those streaming in from the East Memphis campus. We love you guys, and we are grateful for you. Now, this morning, we are in the second part of our four-part series entitled The Gospel-Centered Marriage. And the reason why we have named this series The Gospel-Centered Marriage is because what we've said, what I've argued, is that every marriage is built around and centered around something. And in light of scripture, what we are arguing is that the only thing that can and should be at the center of your marriage is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? All right, I'm going to need you all to be responding, okay? So the, the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you know that we began with a definition of what a gospel-centered marriage was. We said that a gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel through continual gospel meditation and motivation. So a gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel, Ephesians 5, through continual gospel meditation and motivation. Another way to look at that is with this formula, which is gospel meditation plus gospel motivation equals gospel model. In other words, the only way you can model something is when you meditate on it and are motivated by it. So that's the definition that we are working off of, and it's the definition that I'm going to bring up throughout the series. Now, here's the thing. Now that I've kind of given you a little bit of a review of where we've been, what I want to do is give you a preview of where we're going. This morning, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2. Next week, we are going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and then we are concluding the series by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. But this morning, we are starting, uh, we are beginning by looking at marriage through the lens of Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn them on. Uh, Go ahead and open them. If you have your devices, go ahead and turn them on. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Anyways, if you don't have either of those, it'll be here on the screen behind me. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. What I would love for you to do, if you are able, is to stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib 
that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for your word. And God, I pray that even now as we speak on the subject of marriage, that you would be, from the moment I say amen, stop me from speaking in Holy Spirit, that it would be you speaking through me. Father, there are people in this room who are single and want to be married. And there are people in this room who are married and want to be single. And so, God, I pray that regardless of where people find themselves today, that this would be a passage, that this would be a message that speaks to them. And the only way that's going to happen, Holy Spirit, is if you show up. The only way that's going to happen is if you take your word and do not allow it to return void. And so I pray that from the moment I say amen, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is my prayer. That is our prayer. And we pray it in the glorious name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So like I already mentioned uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at the topic of marriage through the lens of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at Genesis 2 under two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the pattern of marriage. And then after we look at the, pa- the pattern of marriage, we are going to conclude by looking at the power for marriage. So we're going to begin by looking at the pattern of it. And we're going to conclude by looking at the power for it. So this morning, I want to begin by looking at the pattern of marriage. In this passage, we are given a pattern for marriage. And when you look closely at the passage, what you see is that there is a three-part pattern that is presented for us to follow. The first step that we are to take if we are to live out this pattern is we are to believe. The second step that we are to take is we are to leave. And then the third step is we are to cleave. So believe, leave, and cleave. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how did Will achieve this? Well, that's a secret that you will never find out. But the first step that we must take in order to follow the biblical pattern of marriage is we must believe. We must believe. Now, what do I mean by believe? Well, this first step, I would say, is the most uh, undervalued, underappreciated, and overlooked step out of all the steps. And this first step has to do specifically with the people in the room today who have not married yet. For the people in the room who are still single but are looking one day to be married. What I discovered this week as I was looking at this passage is that the first step we must take is we must believe. But believe what? We must believe God in two ways. We must believe God with the process and we must believe God for the person. With the process and for the person. So the first way that we must believe God is with the process. Now what do I mean by that? When you look at this passage, one of the things that I found interesting this week is that Adam, well let me back up, the only person doing any sort of activity in the passage is not Adam, it's not Eve, it's God. Look, 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 I'm going to just take the verbs that you see here in Genesis chapter 2. Look at the verbs. It says, the Lord God took. The Lord God said. 
the Lord God caused the man. He, the Lord God, took one of the man's ribs. Then the Lord God made a woman. Then the Lord God brought her to the man. So what I need you to see is that this passage is written in such a way so that we see the contrast between man's passivity and God's activity. As Adam sleeps, it's literally as Adam is sleeping, as Adam is resting, that God creates a woman from his rib. Don't miss that. So here's what I want you to know. If you're sitting here today and you're single and you are hoping to one day be married, what I need you to know is not that you don't play a role in this process. It's not that you just sit there and just don't do anything. But even though you play a role, the results are in God's hands. You play a role, but the results are in God's hands. Don't miss that. Because it's so easy to forget that. And what's crazy is that many times, single people... You, you trust God with your finances. You trust God with your education. You, you trust God with your relationships. Well, every other relationship with your friendships. But for some reason, when it comes to this area, it's like you cannot trust him. You, you, you cannot release control. You feel like it is totally and completely up to you. Now, here's the thing. I would argue that part of the reason why this happens is because married people do not help the situation. Married people are not helpful when it comes to this process of waiting on God for the process. Here's what I mean. What a lot of married people do is they have revisionist history. And so what they do is they tell you the story about how they met their wife or how they met their husband. And almost always, because this is what we do, they end up making themselves sound better than what they actually were in the process. And they come off as if the reason why the relationship is what it is is because they were so smooth or they were so romantic or they were so whatever. And it's because of what they've done. It's because of the role that they've played that they are in a relationship. And so what happens is the more singles hear that story, the more they start to think, okay, well, that means that in order for me to find a spouse, I have to always be ready. And you start to... to, to uh, uh, struggle with relational FOMO, which FOMO is the fear of missing out. And so you go to every party, every Bible study, you wear uh, uh, lipstick and high heels to Walmart at like 11 o'clock at night, just in case your spouse is one of the cashiers. <laughs> and there's this fear, there's this anxiety, there's this, my spouse can be right around the corner and I have to be ready. But again, I feel that married people make this harder than what it needs to be. Not only are they exaggerating, but they are not being helpful. Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples of how you see that it's only the Lord that can bring someone to you. In other words, it's almost as if the father, God, the father, uh, he creates his daughter, he prepares his daughter, and then he's the one that walks his daughter down the aisle. He's the one doing all the work. The first wedding has the first father walking the first daughter down the aisle. Okay, but let me give you some examples of why this is so of how, of how we can just easily exaggerate what the journey to being together actually was. When Lily and I started dating, we, we, I was 18, she was 16. We met in high school, met at a church youth group, and it's just, uh, we don't have time for the whole story. But here's what you need to know. I didn't know this, but I sat down with my father-in-law maybe like one or two years ago, and he was telling me we were driving somewhere together, and he informed me that uh, back a few years ago, way before I met Lily, he said that he got offered this job offer. 
And it was this really great job offer that was going to require him and his family to leave the state of Illinois, which is where Lily and I met. He says he was so sure he was going to take it that they came home and they sat around the table and they prayed about it and they discussed it and they, they tried to figure out what would be the best decision for the family. He said that to his surprise, they actually ended up deciding that they weren't going to go that route. And I remember thinking as I was sitting there in the car with him was, man, imagine if they would have decided to leave the state of Illinois. Then how would I ever have met Lily? And for some reason, that hit me like, I, I'm so quick to take credit for how it all worked out. I'm so quick to take credit for how I just happened to be in the same youth group, and I, and I used my, my smooth Latino moves, and it just, it all worked out. And they're pretty smooth, y'all, okay, but that's for another sermon. Um, but, but that story just reminded me of how little control I had over that situation. Another example that I heard not too long ago was from uh, Josh and Alicia Steele. Uh, and, Josh and Josh is one of the elders at our church. And so I told him, I'm like, listen, man, if you're an elder, I can share your story, bro. Too bad. Like, no one told you to sign up for this. But here's how they met. And if I'm exaggerating, well, you can ask them later. But here, here's how they met from what I remember. They were driving. Him and his buddies were driving on the expressway on the way to a test. And she just happened to be driving on the same expressway going somewhere else. And he did something that he said he had never done before, supposedly. <laughs> and he, he, he grabbed a piece of paper and essentially gave her his number. And he slammed it up against the glass <laughs> as they drove by. Now she did something that she had never done before, supposedly. <laughs> and she ended up calling him. And that's how they met. So they had to be on the same expressway at the same time, going at the same speed in order for them to meet. The last thing they can do is take credit for the relationship that they have because it's clear that God wanted them together. The problem is, is that many times married people don't tell you about the struggle. They don't tell you about the weight. They don't tell you about the fears. They don't tell you about the loneliness. They don't bring all that up because once you get into the marriage, you forget how difficult singleness was. So, the first thing we must do is, is we must believe God with the process. You and I, we play a role, but the results are in God's hands. Now, the second thing that we must believe God with, and this is equally important, is not only must we believe God with the process, we must also believe God with the person. And here's what I mean. In the passage, it says that the Lord, some translations put it this way, the Lord created a suitable helper for Adam. All the animals came around and there was no suitable helper for Adam. Those two words in Hebrew, suitable and helper, are very important words that reveal to us how you and I must believe God when it comes not just with the process, but it comes to the actual person. So let's, let's, let's look at each word. The first word that I want you to see is the word suitable. Now, in, in the Hebrew, the word there is a very unique word because what it means, suitable, means to be like but opposite. It's literally what it means. It's a like opposite. It means to have an equal counterpart. Now, that seems like a, almost like an oxymoron. How can you have something that's like and yet opposite? Well, that's exactly the word that's being used there. 
And so the picture that I want you to think of, the, the picture that I want you to imagine that, that really helped me this week is that a, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman are like puzzle pieces, right? Puzzles are made from the same exact substance, material, same substance, but different shape. They are the same, and yet they are different. They complement each other. In other words, there is something that she brings that he needs, and there's something that he brings that she needs. And when they fit together, when you put the two pieces together, you get a clearer picture of who God is and what the gospel says. Does that make sense? So, so one of the things that happens, though, when we, when we look at this passage is we are tempted to assume that, oh, this must mean that women are less than, because it says a suitable helper. Oh, okay, it was saying that men are important and then women are not important. But, but here's the thing. Even though men and women are different, the, the author here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is focusing on their similarities, not their differences. And Adam and Eve uh, uh, might be different genders. But it's not that she's from Mar- he's from Mars and she's from Venus, like the book says. No, no, they're from the same God. They're in the same garden. They're made in the same image. And as a result... They share the same nature. And so even though they are different in roles, it does not mean that they are different in value or in worth. And for those of you who don't believe that, all you have to do is look at the Trinity. There's a Father, there's a Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. They are all equal in value, but they have different roles. The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son. But just because their roles are different doesn't mean that their value is any different, okay? But we also know that that, that, that idea of being suitable means that she's equal because the, the fact that it says that she came from his rib. She came from his rib. Look what uh, the Puritan Matthew Henry says about this. He says, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's why she's made from his rib. Now, some of you may not know this about my story, but I was born with an ear deformity called microtia, and as a result, from the age of five to the age of 18, I had 15 major reconstructive surgeries. In that journey, one of the things that had to happen was I had to have had an ear reconstructed, and what they did was they essentially opened up my midsection, and they took cartilage from in between my ribs, and so I got a scar here, and I have a scar here. And so one of the things that I used to do uh, when Lily and I were dating, just to make sure that I was romancing her, okay, I would look at her and I'd be like, listen, girl, you listening? Okay, listen. It took one rib to make Eve. It took two ribs to make you, girl. So in other words, you're my McRib is what I'm saying. Okay. Now, unless you are missing ribs, you can't use that line, but... It worked for me. Well, I don't know if it worked for me. I used it. I don't know if it worked. <laughs> but here's the other thing. One of the other things I would do when we were dating, and I thought I was being so romantic, is uh, I, I went to Hobby Lobby and I bought one of those votive candles. I had a whole pack of them in my car. And I would, uh, the little ones that you flick on and they like flicker, uh, 
and I would bring them to restaurants with me. So I would take her to McDonald's and I would take the candle out. <laughs> Tonight's about you, girl. <laughs> Get whatever you want on the menu. It's a true story. I did both of those things. I'm not thinking as well. So I'm a romantic guy. I don't, know, I don't know what else to tell you. Now you know why she chose me. But, but what we see, though, is that there is a, an equality there. They are different and yet the same. They are same and yet different. Okay? So, so we have to understand that God, we have to believe God for the person. God will, if it's his will, remember we talked about last week, I can't promise you you're going to be married because I don't know if you are. But if God has someone for you, it will be someone who is suitable, compatible, and match who you are as a person. They're not your soulmate, because that's not even biblical, but they will be someone who is compatible with you. But the other word I want you to see, and is this word is equally as important, is not only does it say she is a suitable, she's suitable, but it says that she's a helper. Now, that's the word that most people get hung up on, because when we hear the word helper, we automatically assume that she is less than, that she is his servant, that she has to do whatever he says. That's not true, and it's not biblical, because the word their helper is actually used multiple times throughout the Old Testament, and the only other person that it's used to describe outside of her is God. And so we know that it can't mean that because God is not that type of being, okay? Here's what the word helper, though, means. The word helper there is a strong word. It is a military word. It means strength. It means power. It means one who supplies what is needed. Get this. It means military reinforcement. In other words, she shows up because she has something that he needs. He is in need, and she shows up in his moment of need to compliment him and provide something that he needs. But don't miss this. I am specifically using the word compliment. She doesn't complete him. She compliments him. Remember what we said last week with singleness. If, you, if the Lord ever gives you someone to be with, that person will compliment you, but that person will never complete you. Only God can complete you. And one of the things that has happened in our day... And I've seen this in many of the books that I've read and articles that I've read on this subject is we have this thing called apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance. Oh, and as a side note, the books that I read, the articles that I read, the things that I use to kind of prepare for this series, if you want to know what those are, um, if you go to highpointmemphis.com slash marriage, all those resources are there. Just FYI. Okay? But here's the thing. What... People say, scholars and, and people who study the culture, sociologists, what they argue is that our culture is unique in that we are one of the first cultures in human history that have no belief in a greater power or a greater being. Now, one of the side effects of that is that you still need approval. You still need acceptance. You still need significance. And so what has happened is instead of finding that vertically in God, we have found it horizontally in the romantic partner. And so he said, this culture, more than any culture that's ever existed before it, goes looking for in the romantic partner what can only be found in God. And so I need you to see that even though they are suitable, even though they are complementary, she compliments him, she doesn't complete him. That is a cultural lie. Only God can do that. So the first step that we are to take, the first part of the pattern is we are to believe. The second part of the pattern is we are to leave. Now, here's the thing about this second step. 
if the first step, if you not taking the first step makes the pre-marriage process difficult, then you not taking this second step makes your marriage a living hell. As a matter of fact, I would argue that many of the fights that result in marriage are because one or both of the spouses haven't left yet. They haven't left their father and mother. Look what it says in Genesis 2, 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave. Everyone say leave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But the second step in the process, the second part of the, of the process, of the pattern, is you must leave your father and your mother. Now, before I tell you what it is, let me quickly tell you what it's not. This doesn't mean that you cut your parents off and never talk to them again. This doesn't mean that you ignore your parents. This doesn't mean that you block their calls. This doesn't mean that, that you, you, you never honor them again because that's a command in scripture to honor your father and your mother. It doesn't mean any of those things, but here is what it does mean, okay? Let me unpack for you what it does mean. There are four ways in which we are to leave our father and our mother. The first way that we are to leave is we are to leave spiritually. Now, here's what I mean by leaving spiritually. If you, by the grace of God, had the opportunity to grow up in a home where there was Christian schools and there was Christian activities and you attended a Christian church and you were raised by Christian parents, that is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. The shadow side to that, though, is that if you're not careful, your faith never actually becomes your own. And one of the one of the dangers about that is that you can be so close to a fire that you assume that you are the one that's on fire for the Lord. But really, you're not really the one that's on fire. You're just really, really close to a fire. So when you walk away from their fire, all of a sudden it's not as warm anymore because it was never actually your faith. And so one of the things that has to happen if you are going to be the spouse that God is calling you to be is you have to leave spiritually. Your faith has to become your own. The reason why you can't pray for your spouse, the reason why you can't disciple your your spouse, the reason why you can't spiritually lead your spouse is because you've never done those things with yourself. How can you do it with someone else if you've never done them yourself? That's the issue. You saw it, but you didn't embrace it. There's a major difference between those two things. And here's also what I mean by leaving spiritually. Your parents might be a wonderful resource for you. When you are making decisions, when you're trying to figure out what to do next, your parents might be a wonderful spiritual resource. But guess what? There are other Christians who have the Holy Spirit as well. And it would be wise, I think, to surround yourself with other godly men and women who you can go to for advice and for wisdom and for clarity on what you want to do. Not that your parents can't be considered. I, I would actually say that the bigger the decision, the more likely it is that you should bring your parents into it. But when, they go, when, you, when they're your go-to for every single thing that's happening, that is not healthy. You haven't left spiritually, if that's the case. Another way that you, we are called to leave in light of this passage, and this is probably the hardest one, is we are called to leave emotionally. Emotionally. Now, this one on the surface sounds like a pretty drastic 
step, right? Leave emotionally. What does that mean? That I, that I just cut them off and never interact with them again? What does it mean to not, to leave my parents emotionally? How, how do I do something like that? Well, here's the thing. The thing about leaving emotionally is that every spouse in a marriage, both spouses in the marriage, some spouses, when it comes to this area, they bring some baggage, some carry-ons, some emotional baggage carry-ons. Some spouses, they have trunks of this. They don't have carry-ons. They have trunks. They can't put it in the overhead compartment. They got to leave them out on the, uh, they got to put them under the plane because there's so much baggage that you have. Okay? So, so let me give you some examples of what I mean when I, may, when I say leaving emotionally. I'll give you a, a story from, from my life. When my wife and I were engaged, one of the things that we had to figure out is where we were going to live. So we met in Chicago, the Chicagoland area, but then where when we were getting married, we were graduating from Moody, and I had to figure out where we were going to go to seminary. And so we were like, okay, well, we have a few options here. We can go to Trinity, which was right there in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we can go to Gordon-Conwell, which was in the Northeast. We can go to Covenant Seminary, which was in St. Louis, or we can go to uh, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, which was in Louisville. So we had options. And one of the things that we did as we were figuring out what we wanted to do is we brought our parents, her father and my mother, on these trips, these seminary trips, okay? And when we went on these trips, we would go out and we would look at the apartments and we would look at the curriculum and we would meet some of the staff and it was a whole journey, right? Well, after getting back from that, it was all kind of like, you know, what are we going to do? There's a lot of options. All seem good. What does God want us to do? Well, here's the thing about my mother and I. My mother is a very strong personality. And my mother and I are both threes on the Enneagram. So not only is she a strong personality, but we literally see the world exactly the same. So when my mother speaks to me, she speaks directly to my heart because she understands what my motivations are. Not only because she knows me, but because we are literally motivated by our threeness, Okay. And so here's what happened. We come home, and I go to my mom. Hey, mom, what do you think we should do? She's like, well, son, I am glad you asked. I actually have created a power, uh, uh, an Excel sheet that gives you all the options. So here's what would happen financially if you go to St. Louis. Here's Louisville. Here's Chicago. Here's Boston. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so helpful, mom. No wonder I go to you for everything. And I'm like, mom, what do you think we should do after giving me all these options? She's like, I think you should go to Louisville. All right, mental check. Louisville it is. So I go back to my fiance, who would soon to be my wife, and I'm like, hey, I feel like God's calling us to go to Louisville. <laughs> I didn't pray about it. I didn't fast about it. I just knew that we were to go to Louisville. So she's like, okay. We end up going to Louisville. About two, three months into our marriage, we, were, we had some financial things we needed to navigate. She's like, you know, one of the things that would be really helpful is if we create a budget. And I'm like, all right, cool, yeah, let's create a budget. She's like, well, hey, since you're so good at Excel, maybe you should make the budget. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So we sit down in front of the computer, and I start trying to figure out what, I had never used Excel in my life. And she's like, how do you not know how to do this? You did such a good job a few months ago. And I'm like, yeah, about that. I, I wasn't the one that created that Excel sheet. She's like, what? I'm actually, my mom did. She's like, what? She's like, wait, did your mom give her opinion on where we should go? I'm like, yeah. She's like, what was it? I'm like, well, we're living in it. <laughs> we're... Let's just say it was a big fight, okay? One of the biggest fights 
It's a long night. <laughs> but here's an, that's an example of it, though, right? So, so what I need you to see is this, that one of the ways that you know you have to leave emotionally is when your parents are still the people you go to for your final approval, for your final vote. Like the, the final vote is that the, the, last, the last vote is always your parents for your final endorsement. If every time you have to make a decision, whether it's small or little, you got to go to your parents to get their opinion on it, it might mean that you haven't left emotionally yet. Just, just maybe. If every time something good happens in your life, the first person you think of calling is your mom or your dad, like you're still six, and you're like, look what I did. Are you proud? It might mean you haven't left emotionally yet. Those are all examples of how we have yet to leave emotionally. Okay? Here's the other thing. I would argue that the more unhealthy your parents are, the more likely they are to be emotionally reliant on you. So, for example, let's say that your mom or your dad is divorced, or your mom and your dad is a widow, or your mom and your dad have a terrible, unhappy marriage they are going to be much more likely to rely on you than if they didn't. And you are going to be much more likely to feel responsible for them than if they didn't. So it's a two-way street. And speaking of a two-way street, parents, you right now are either feeding this or you're starving it. This isn't happening without you being aware. You're either feeding it or you are starving it. When your child calls, you can either say, no, really? Or you can say, no, go talk to your spouse. So the question is, are you feeding it or are you starving it? Some of you parents, you're so focused on keeping them the child that they were that you're actually hindering them from being the spouse that they are called to be. Get this, don't miss this. I heard this quote the other day and I think it was so well said. The people who are most offended by the, by the boundaries that you established are the people who were violating those boundaries. Don't miss that. The only people who will be offended by your boundaries were the ones that previously were stepping over them. And now they are angry because you are pushing them out. How dare you? And then, you and then parents start the guilt trip. Well, honey, it's just I, I just love you and I, and I miss you and I just want to make sure you're okay. Man, you, you don't know too much about grace, but you're a beast when it comes to guilt. The third way that we are to leave is we are to leave financially. Okay? Now, here's the thing about the financial one. All the people here who are the spouses, up to this point, you were like, amen, brother. Amen, brother. Amen. We get to this one, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean I got to leave financially? I might not like their opinions, but man, I love their bank accounts. I don't want to give the credit card back just yet. What if an emergency comes up? But here's the thing. If you leave the door open in one area, don't be surprised when they walk through the door in other areas. 
You lack integrity when you don't want your parents' opinions, but you want your parents' money. And here's the thing, parents. When you are constantly bailing your children out, here's, here's what I used to do when my girls were younger and they would be playing on the, on, the, on, the, on the bed or on the couch, I would throw all these pillows around the ground just in case they fell. I was, I was worried that they might get hurt. What parents do is their kids go off and then they, they put all these pillows out. The problem with you putting those pillows out is that when your child falls, they don't end up learning the lesson that God wants them to learn. Because if you remember how you grew up, those falls are what made you a better steward. Those falls are what made you a better leader. Those falls are what made you a better spouse. When you keep your child from experiencing those things, you are not helping them, you are hindering them. But not only that, not only are you hindering them, but I would argue that you are giving them a skewed perspective of what success looks like. Because here's the thing, you are helping them experience a life right now, three years into their marriage, that it took you 30 years to experience. And so in their mind, they haven't gone through the hard work that you've gone through to get where you are. And so you're giving them false expectations of what life actually is. Okay? The next one and last one is this. Not only are we to leave spiritually, emotionally, financially, but lastly, we are to leave culturally. Listen, every family has a culture just like every family has a smell. You know that your family has a smell, right? You don't smell it, but everybody else smells it. Your family also has a culture. And you know what different families have different cultures. Like, you go to someone's house and pretty quickly you figure out, this is one of those houses where you take your shoes off. This is one of those houses that you don't stay too late. Every family has a culture. The only person that doesn't know that, the only people that don't know that is the family. And so when you go into marriage, you bring your family's culture with you. Your family had a culture on how to, how to handle money. They had a culture on how to raise children. They had a culture on how to make decisions. They had a culture on how to do vacations. They had a culture for every single one of those things. When you don't acknowledge that, you go into marriage with your culture thinking you're a blank slate when you're anything but that. And so you bring your culture with you. And so what that means is, essentially, the leaving process doesn't just happen once. It happens over and over and over again. Why? Because with every new season, you have to leave whatever culture was instilled in you. So when you're first married, there's a culture that you have in your mind. Then when you have kids, your parents' culture on how to raise kids is there. Now you got to leave that culture and establish a new culture with your spouse. Not with your mom. Not with your dad. But with your spouse. That's why this is so important. You have to leave culturally. And I would argue many of the fights... Much of the conflict that happens in marriage is because one or both of the spouses have yet to leave culturally. And here's the thing. I didn't say this in the first service, but this is really important. You actually take the culture with you whether you had a good parent or a bad parent. 
whether you had a good family upbringing or a bad family upbringing. So for example, if you had a good family upbringing, you want to just implement the whole thing all over again. Hey, it worked for me. Let's do it again. But if you have bad parents, in your mind, you think, well, I'm never going to do what they did. But here's the thing. By you choosing to do the exact opposite of what your parents did, you're still limiting your options. Does that make sense? And there's no way that your parents did everything wrong. And so by you saying, I will never do what they did in every, any area of my life, you are limiting yourself just as much as if you said, I'm going to do everything they did because it was great. So either way, the culture comes with you. And the last thing I will say is this. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, okay, well, here's the thing. I'm an older single. I've been out of my parents' house for X amount of years. There's no way I'm going to bring this with me. No, no. It's sitting there dormant. And when do you find a person, it's all coming up. So in order to leave, those are the four areas in which we must leave. Then the last thing we got to do is we must cleave. Look what it says in verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But I need you to look at the phrase there, hold fast. That's actually where I get the word cleave from. In the King James Version, it says he must leave and he must cleave. He must be united. He must hold fast. That, that word there, cleave, it literally means to be glued to someone, to be cemented to someone, to be stuck with someone. That's what the, that's what the word there means. That's a very, very strong word that is being used there in the Hebrews. In the Hebrews. So if that's true, this is what this means. If, if the word there uh, uh, to hold fast or to cleave means all those things, then there are three implications that we have to be aware of. The first implication is that cleaving, cleaving is provisional. What do I mean by provisional? Well, by provisional, what I mean is that it's conditional. And by conditional, I don't mean that it's optional. I mean that it's conditional. You can't take the third step, cleave, unless you've taken the second step, leave. To the degree that you leave, to that same degree you can cleave. And so many of you, you've been married for weeks, months, years, or decades. The reason why you still cannot cleave is because you haven't left yet. You have left symbolically, but not literally. Not in reality. You can only take the third step if you've taken the second step. And what I would argue is the other spouse, the one who has left, can't fully trust you with the cleaving because in their mind, they know you haven't fully left yet. So they're not going to give the, the full, their full selves over to you because you still haven't given your full self over to them. So the first implication of that word cleave is that it's provisional. The second implication is that it's powerful. And here's what I mean by powerful. Remember what I said the word cleave there means. It means to be glued to something, to be stuck to something, to be cemented to something. And what commentators say is that it's speaking about sexual union. That God created sex in such a way that sex is an adhesive. It literally sticks you to whoever you are being intimate with. The problem is, is that when you have sex outside of marriage... It can be very dangerous and disastrous. Why? Because you are lacking relational integrity. What you are saying with your body is not what you're actually saying in the relationship. 
With your body, you're saying we are one, but with your finances, legally, uh, relationally, emotionally, culturally, you're not actually one. And so what you do, what you have is you, you lack relational integrity. The problem is, is that if, if sex really is an adhesive, it, 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 it sticks you and, and cements you to whoever you're being intimate with, then if you continue to have sex without marriage, whether, outside of marriage, whether it's with the same person or with different people, over time, that adhesiveness becomes less and less sticky. So just like a piece of tape that you use too many times and it no longer has any stickiness, that's what happens when you use sex outside of marriage. So by the time you do actually get married, you bring a whole bunch of baggage with you because you didn't use sex the way it was supposed to be used. That's why sex is very powerful, but just like a fire should be kept, well, a campfire should be kept surrounded around stones, if it's there, it's powerful and it's useful if it's in the right context. But if that fire comes outside of the stones, you have a forest fire. The same thing that warmed you is now the same thing that burned your life down. That's why that's so dangerous. In marriage, get this, sex serves as a thermometer. Here's what I mean. If you are in a committed covenant relationship, one of the ways you know how your relationship is doing is your sex life. Your sex life will be a good thermometer to tell you what the temperature of your marriage is. But sex is a thermometer in marriage. It's not a thermostat. It's not what sets the temperature. It's what tells you what the temperature is. The problem with having sex outside of marriage is that you start to treat sex like a thermostat instead of a thermometer. And so you determine the temperature of your relationship by how good your sex life is. And that was never what sex was meant to be. So it's provisional. It's powerful. And the last thing is it's pervasive. The word there, cleave, means to do life with someone, whole life with someone, being united with someone at every single level of your life. That's what it means there. So in order for you to truly cleave, you don't just connect sexually, you connect emotionally, relationally, financially. That's why I never get couples that are like, oh, I have my account, she has her account. This is my money, that's her money. Don't touch my money. Oh, hold on. What? That doesn't make sense to me biblically at all. Okay? So it means you are coming together. So get this. When you first get married, you are married positionally. In other words, let's say you've been married for 20 years. You are no more married today than you were 20 years ago. Positionally, you've been married since day one. But practically, progressively, you are more married today than when you were 20 years ago. Why? Because the vows that you made back then, you didn't even know what you were saying. And so what this is saying is that over time, like two threads coming together, your lives your life start to interweave with each other, and two become one. The Puritan Thomas Adams puts it this way. He says, as God by creation made two of one, so again by marriage, he made one of two. So that is the pattern of marriage. What I want to do now as we conclude this morning is I want to look at the power for marriage. The power for marriage. Now, some of you may be sitting here right now and you're confused. And the reason why you're confused is because you're sitting here thinking, well, hold on. Why are you giving me the power of marriage when you've already given me the pattern for marriage? I got it. I don't need power to do it. I already wrote the notes down. Did you not see me writing notes? I got this. 
My marriage is going to be great from here on out. Why are you giving me the power if I already have the, pa- the pattern? Well, here's the why. Here's why. The reason why I can't just give you the pattern, I also have to give you the power, is because there's a problem. And the problem is this. The problem is, is that Genesis chapter 2 was not the last chapter in the Bible. If the Bible ended in Genesis chapter 2, then all I would have to give you is a pattern. But since Genesis chapter 3 is in your Bible, I have to give you the power. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, everything that was good in chapter 2 gets reversed. And Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 2, they are naked and unashamed before God and each other. And then in Genesis chapter 3, literally a few verses later, look what it says in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So one commentator put it this way. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve were naked yet clothed. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were clothed yet naked. Everything changes because of that one moment. The reason why I can't just give you a pattern and I have to give you the power is because there's a problem. But here's the thing. A little bit ago, I said that the problem is, is that Genesis, the bad news is, is that Genesis chapter 2 is not the last chapter in the Bible. That's, that, that's the bad news. But the better news is that Genesis chapter 3 is also not the last chapter in the Bible. So, so, so follow with me here, okay? Make sure you don't miss this, and I need you over there in East Memphis to be with me too. Follow with me here, okay? Our problem started with the first Adam. But our power comes from the last Adam. Our problem started in one garden. But our power comes from another garden. Our problem started with one tree. But our power comes from another tree. Our problem started with one story, but our power comes from another story, and that story is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, don't don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ is the greater Adam who was tempted in the greater garden and was obedient with the greater tree. Jesus Christ is the greater spouse who left his father's house. He came from heaven down to earth in order to unite himself and to be cleaved with us. But Jesus, not only is he the greater Adam, he's also the greater Eve. And as heretical as that sounds, here's what I mean. I said that Eve was different yet the same. Jesus is the greater Eve Because he is like us in his humanity, but he is unlike us in his divinity. Since he was man, he can relate, but since he was God, he can redeem. But not only is he the greater Eve because of that, he is also the greater Eve because Jesus Christ is the greater helper. We said that the word helper means strength. It means power. 
It means a military reinforcement. Jesus Christ shows up in the lowest moment of humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, God's already promising the good news. He looks at the serpent and said, this woman that you deceived, from her I will send military reinforcement. I will send the ultimate helper, and his name is Jesus Christ. And just like the movie, listen, in the movie, the Marvel, uh, the, the movie Endgame, right, Marvel Endgame, if you haven't seen it, check your heart, because it's been out for a while now, okay? But in the movie, the, the Endgame, right at the end, Thanos has all these people and all the good guys are surrounded. And in the lowest point of the movie, the sky opens up and Captain Marvel shows up. And when she shows up, you know it's over. The movie hasn't even ended yet. The battle scene is still going, but you know it's over. The military reinforcement shows up at just the right time. Take that scene, multiply it by a billion, and then you start to realize why the gospel is the only place where you will find the power for your marriage. Come on. And it would be lazy for me to say that it's only the New Testament that tells us about this greater story. That it's only the New Testament that tells us about God, our husband, coming after our broken, sinful, wayward, prideful bride. It's not just the New Testament, it's the Old Testament. And one of the places where you see that most clearly seen, most clearly displayed, is in the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God shows up to this prophet named Hosea, and he says, listen, Hosea, I need you as my prophet to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And the reason why I want you to name a prostitute named Gomer is because I want your, your life to back up your message so that as you go out into the streets of Israel and tell the people how they have been unfaithful, how they have been adulterers to their spiritual husband, I want your marriage to be a living illustration of how unfaithful they are. So he goes out and he marries Gomer. And in chapter one, it says they have three children. And one of the children is named Not Loved. And the other child is named Not My People. And at the end of chapter one, she leaves him to go do exactly what God said she was gonna do. And for an entire chapter, he has no idea where she goes. He has no idea where his wife went. And the person who informs him of the location is God. And God says, I need you to go look for your wife. And he says, the wife who betrayed me, the wife who cheated on me, the wife who abandoned me and my children, yes, go look for your wife. He goes looking for her. And the story says that he finds her and she's on the auction block. She has been sold into slavery. She is a sexual slave. He walks up to her. He sees her. She sees him. He sees her in her nakedness. He sees her in her brokenness. He sees her in her filthiness. He looks at his wife. He goes to open his mouth, and she thinks he's going to judge her. He thinks he's going to condemn her. She thinks he's going to spit on her. Instead, what he does is he looks at her and says, I want her. I want her. He goes to grab his wife. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. You don't, she doesn't belong to you, she belongs to me. He's like, but she's my wife. No, no, she's my slave. You have to buy her. And you know what Hosea says? He says, how much? How much? How 
much do I have to pay? Because that's my wife. I want her back. And he buys his wife back. And on the way home, he takes off his robe and he puts it over her nakedness. And he puts it over her brokenness. And what people don't tell you about the story is that that is the last time you ever hear about Gomer cheating on Hosea. Why? Because when you experience the unconditional love, mercy, and grace of God, it changes things. And the only reason why that story is a good story is because it points us to a greater story. It points us to a greater Hosea. It points us to a greater Gomer. It points us to a greater spouse. It points us to a greater helper. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came down from heaven, down to earth, and he went into the seediest, nastiest places to go look for you and for me. He finally finds us and we're up on the platform. And he sees us naked and broken and shackled and filthy and dirty. And he looks at us and he says, I want you. I want him. I want her. And Satan says, no, 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 no. They belong to me. You got to pay the price. And Jesus says, how much? How much? And he came to pay not with shekels or with quarters or with dollars or with silver or with gold. The Bible says that he came to pay for us with his precious blood. Jesus Christ bought us back. Man, when you understand the gospel, when you understand the good news, when you understand that you were loved that way, that you were pursued that way, that you are covered that way. It changes how you do marriage. When you see Jesus as the greater Hosea, when you see yourself as the greater Gomer, and that in him you have been protected, you have been provided for, you have been pursued, you have been loved, you have been forgiven. It changes how you do marriage because now you can love your spouse with no strings attached because Jesus loved you with no strings attached. They don't have to be perfect because he was perfect. They don't have to save you because he saved you. They don't have to have it all together because he had it all together. To the degree that you see Jesus leaving and cleaving for you, to that same degree you will leave and cleave for them. And that's why I said the definition of marriage, of a gospel-centered marriage, is a marriage that models the gospel through gospel meditation and motivation. Man, the more you meditate on that story that I just told you, the more you will be motivated by it and the more you will model it. And so here's the thing. Even though our problem started with the first wedding, praise be to God that our power comes from the last wedding. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And God, I pray in Jesus' name for the people here who are single and want to be married and for the people here who are married and want to be single. I pray, Father, that today would be the day that they understand that it's only in meditating on this gospel that they will be motivated by it and that they will model 
the gospel in their lives. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in your name. And all God's people said.